This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Thanks for downloading this episode of Polar Geopolitics. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. If you'd like to help support the production of this podcast, you can find links to our PayPal and Patreon pages in the show notes to this episode. With the Arctic Council going through the most serious crisis since its founding in 1996, here in episode 44, we'll be hearing from one of the Council's original architects to get a longer-term perspective on the stakes and consequences of the current crisis in Arctic governance caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Evan T. Bloom is a senior fellow at the Wilson Center's Polar Institute in Washington, D.C., and the former director for Ocean and Polar Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. I recently spoke to Evan about the future of the Arctic Council in the wake of the Ukraine crisis, and also touched upon the impact on the Antarctic Treaty System, as well as other issues related to Russia and the governance of the polar regions. So, Evan, uh, in some of your past writings uh, prior to Russia's military buildup in Ukraine's border and the eventual invasion, you described the Arctic as a safe space for productive interactions with Russia. Would you say that that kind of Arctic exceptionalism, as it sometimes is called, is perhaps a thing of the past forever or temporarily? Or do you see there's some sort of possibility for reengaging with Russia in some indeterminate future? So, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. It's great to be here. It's a difficult question, and I wouldn't say that we really, at this point, know the answer to it. Um, Historically, and for the past 25-plus years, the Arctic has been an area where it's been possible for a wide variety of countries with disparate political interests have been able to get along and to do so even when there were was pressure in other places. Um, currently, we have uh, a pause in the work of the Arctic Council and a kind of freeze on relations with the Russians. So at this point, I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that this is a permanent situation. I think we're um, at the beginning of a situation where there could be major changes in uh, the geopolitics of the North. Um, but I think it's going to go step by step. We'll see what direction it goes. Uh, it will depend in part on the course of the Ukraine conflict, but also how all of the Arctic states decide to move forward with the kind of work on um, science and other areas of cooperation that they need to proceed with. I mean, given Russia's massive geographic presence in the Arctic and all the activities that it conducts there... Is circumpolar governance even feasible without Russian participation? So Russia takes up a very large part of the Arctic, and they are a very large part of what the other Arctic states are thinking about when they want to pursue broad cooperation in the Arctic region. So it's hard to think about full multilateral cooperation without the Russians. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of cooperation that doesn't involve Russia directly, doesn't involve Russian territory, may involve bilateral uh, relations between 
uh, Sweden and Canada, the U.S. and Canada, etc., uh, and the researchers uh, in those various states doing scientific work up there. So there is a fair amount of work that can continue, um, and I think there will be efforts to make that continue. So it doesn't mean that all cooperation or all scientific efforts ground to a halt. Um, it means that those parts that integrally involve Russia will be certainly affected. But would you really call that, in that case, Arctic governance, Arctic cooperation? I mean, or is that something else that's bilateral, not so comprehensive like the Arctic Council, even though a lot of aspects of Arctic um, affairs are not covered by the Arctic Council, primarily uh, military security? Would something something scaled down like that really capture the... Uh, the imagination in the ways that, that the Arctic Council has and, and sort of stood out as, the, as this sort of a nexus for all things Arctic that it has really evolved into over the past 25 years? Well, there's no question that you really lose a lot of what we think of as Arctic cooperation if you take Russia off the table or if the Arctic Council is not operating. So there are really serious consequences. But my, I guess my point is that um, a lot of the work that goes on within the Arctic doesn't involve all eight states at the same time and also doesn't necessarily involve Russian territory or getting people in and out of Russia. So, for example, the tremendous amount of Arctic research that's done in Alaska, the University of Alaska and its, its various... Um, parts, it just still goes on. The work that's done along the coasts of uh, countries other than Russia uh, still goes on, marine science, etc. So I'm just trying to make the point that it, it's not a question of all Arctic cooperation grinding to a halt. It's just, well, some of the most important um, is certainly affected, but not everything. Do you see the possibility of new institutions taking shape? I mean, there's this maybe peer-to-peer contacts and bilateral contacts that you mentioned there are maybe a substitute that could tie things over for a while, but very hard to foresee how this will evolve the situation in Ukraine and beyond. But could you foresee other institutions taking shape that could supplant the Arctic Council in the medium term? That's the type of issue that I think we're going to have to wait a little while to see. Those of us who worked on setting up the Arctic Council some 25 years ago have an awful lot invested in it. And the Arctic Council has a real track record. And as you know, the key work of the Arctic Council is is really done in its working groups, where you have experts get together and focus on you know particular issues related to environmental protection or climate change or protection of flora and fauna, etc., So there's real value in the continuation of the work that's going on at that level among the various experts. There's been some question about whether the Arctic 7, as they're sometimes called, with the the eight Arctic states minus Russia, which would be the Arctic 7, whether they can or should go forward and simply operate the Arctic Council without Russia, at least for a while. Um, that creates some, some practical difficulties because Russia is an integral part of the council. It is formally one of the members, and the, the council 
deliberately operates on the basis of the consensus of its members. And Russia holds the chairmanship of the, the council. And I think we have to be careful about simply taking over the council, ignoring the Russians. What are the implications of that for the future? Because I think that there is a very strong interest in eventually Russia coming back to the table. Because as you suggest, Russia is a core part of Arctic cooperation. So if there's no path back in the future because we've sort of blown up the Arctic Council and they're not going to feel comfortable in it in the future, um, that that could have some serious consequences. Um, so I, I think it's necessary to to move forward with some care on that sort of question of how you constitute the cooperation that goes on in the near term. I mean, what do you think some of those consequences could be? What are, what are the risks, you would say, in your experience, which goes back to the very founding of the Arctic Council, of moving forward with Arctic governance without Russia? What risks would that really entail? Well, there's so much that goes on that where you really do want Russia involved. And one way of looking at the Arctic Council that, that I've always focused on is that it's a bridge from the Western countries to, to Russia. It is a kind of safe space for discussions, which would have been more difficult if they were handled bilaterally. So if the U.S. wants to talk about um, environmental cleanup within Russia, it's very, very difficult to do that directly with the Russians. But when it's put in a multilateral forum and we're talking about environmental cleanup more generally, it becomes a more acceptable type of discussion. And you can get progress in ways that, that you don't otherwise. So that's, I think, one of the real values of the, of the Arctic Council, to have all these countries at the table. So you, if you don't have the Russians active in the Arctic Council, or, or you're not talking to them there, you, you really do lose that aspect. So you want, you want to get back to an area of cooperation at some point in the future, even though right now it's very hard to see when that comes about. Now, I read an interview with the uh, Russian senior Arctic official uh, Nikolai Korchunov. Uh, yeah. It was a few weeks ago now, but he um, really did seem that Russia really had some hope that Arctic cooperation in the Arctic Council would actually continue. They think that this, this war should not be a reason for, for breaking off the work of the Arctic Council. It seemed a little bit unrealistic in my estimation, but they really seem like they think that Arctic cooperation can continue despite what's happening in other parts of the world, that Arctic exceptionalism really does provide this this buffer that can seal off the Arctic, where this kind of productive cooperation, this safe space that you say, could actually continue. How, from your from your experience with the Arctic Council, how much does Russia really value the Arctic Council? Does it really put a lot of importance in this forum for engaging with other countries, other countries of the West in particular? I think the Russians do put a lot of stock in the council. Um, they worked hard to set up their their chairmanship. I think they do they do care about it. They have various uh, ambitions for their chairmanship, including trying to show Russia at its 
best and worthy of investment in their in their high north. Uh, and they were also, I, I would say, pretty cooperative in putting together the the program of work for the two-year program that they put together. So I can imagine that the Russian officials like Ambassador Korchanov, who work on the council, were uh, quite, uh, quite disappointed in the situation they find themselves in. At the same time, from my point of view, the pause that was imposed by the, the Arctic 7 on the council at this point was absolutely essential. Because the actions that the Russians have taken in Ukraine are so far uh, away from the principles of cooperation that um, are baked into the Arctic Council that there um, that there was no way to sit at the table at meetings convened by the Russians in Russia talking about sustainable development and environmental protection directly with them, uh, not with bombs falling in uh, Kiev and, and other places. So um, that pause, I think, was essential. And uh, a lot of people now are trying to think, well, what what are the next steps? So uh, the Norwegians take the chairmanship in a year. Uh, is that possible? Is it feasible? What should be done between now and then? What should the people working on particular projects uh, within the council uh, over the next year, how do they continue with their their valuable work um, on issues like climate change, etc.? So all of those are the issues that diplomats and others are trying to think through right now. I mean, the fact that you've been involved with the Arctic Council since uh, since its founding, helped establish it back in 1996, you must have an incredible insight into the uh, evolution of modern Russia. I mean, from 1996 until now, it's gone through some tremendous changes. The uh, latter half of the Yeltsin years and then the entire Putin era. How is Russia, from, from your perspective, working at the State Department for many years, uh, working with the Arctic, how has Russia itself changed over these years, both politically, let's say, in terms of foreign policy, and in terms of its engagement with the Arctic? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't consider myself a Russia expert per se, but um, in my field, uh, in both Arctic and Antarctic affairs at the State Department and working primarily with their legal team, working on law of the sea, those sort of issues, there has been, uh, I think, first of all, I think there's been an, an evolution. The Russians at the beginning of the Arctic Council was were not as engaged, were not sending the same level of informed experts to to the council. And over time, they seem to take more and more interest and desire to, to be involved. I think part of that is because um, it allowed them to engage with their indigenous groups um, in the high north, and they found value in that. Um, also, the prospects for being able to work on various aspects of economic development and sustainable development. The key thing about the Arctic Council is it's not a security forum. And uh, if it were, then the discussions there would be a lot more difficult with the Russians. But because um, hard security, military security type issues are not included, it allows for a certain calmness in the discussions. 
uh, that I think has allowed the discourse with the Russians to to improve there over the years. And the other thing I'd say is that the Russians have a cadre of very professional diplomats who are uh, well-versed in, in Arctic issues and international law. And those are the types of folks who show up at the Arctic Council, um, also Antarctic meetings as well. Um, and they are very professional and people who you can, you can do business with. And that also makes it possible to have this bridge between West and, and Russia. Would you say that did Russia become more assertive over the years in terms of exerting its interests in the Arctic? It seems like their their investments have increased tremendously over the past 20 years or so. And even some of their military activity over the past five or 10 years, even though, of course, that's external to the remit of the Arctic Council, has that sort of manifested in any ways inside the work of the Arctic Council? I don't know if it's more assertive. I mean, Russia deeply cares about the Arctic. They conceive of themselves as as an Arctic nation, and they they care about it. So um, they are interested in um, promoting the Northern Sea Route. Um, they are interested in uh, icebreakers. As you know, they have more of them than any other country. So they invest in that area. So I don't think it's so much them becoming more assertive in the council. I mean, they were always interested. But the point is, is for me, is that they really want to engage in the context of the council. They're not uh, sitting back and ignoring it. They view it, I think, as uh, something that's positive context in which they could advance their interests. Another storyline of the Arctic over the past 10, 15 years or so during your time uh, working with the Arctic Affairs at the State Department has been the increased interest from non-Arctic states. And that's something you've uh, written about as well for the uh, for the Wilson Center's um, quarterly magazine, I believe. Yeah. Can you perhaps talk about that a bit, about this, this pretty significant external interest in the Arctic coming from countries such as China, Japan, Germany, the Netherlands, I mean, from, from all over, even a, a new crop of non-Arctic states trying to become Arctic Council observers. How has that changed the council, and do you, where do you see that going from here on out? Well, I think that there are a whole range of, of countries that have real interests in the Arctic and see it as part of their future. Part of that relates to the economic uh, opportunities, shipping opportunities that come with receding ice, but also the fact that a lot of the climate research that you w need to do and that affects the entire globe is done uh, and can only be done up in the Arctic. And so there's been this real interest among a broad array of countries. There's a, a set of Asian countries that have been particularly focused on, on the Arctic um, in terms of uh, research and uh, potential investment. As time goes on, these additional countries start to say, well, you know, we, we want to know what's going on up here. And uh, they have become more and more active as observers within the Arctic Council. And I think that's all to the good. At some point, does it become overly complicated to incorporate so many observers, or are the role of observers so 
external to the main work of, of the member uh, states and the uh, indigenous groups, the permanent participants, can the Arctic Council take in any number of observers and still function as a coherent body? It's really a difficult question in, in the following sense. I mean, as the, the Arctic Council started a couple of decades ago in a relatively small format, you have the eight Arctic states and then the permanent participants, as you mentioned, the indigenous groups. And they were meeting often in far-flung places in the high Arctic where you know, you, it's hard enough to get 100 or even 200 people into a room. But as the interest in the Arctic has increased tremendously over the past years, you have more and more, um, not just state uh, observers, but uh, non-governmental organization observers who want to come and understand what's going on. And the, the Arctic Council is the premier diplomatic forum. There's nothing else like it. Um, there are other meetings that uh, involve Arctic stakeholders, but the, the council is, in terms of policy and foreign affairs, unique. So you can understand why more and more organizations and states and people want to be there to, to benefit from knowing what, what's going on. And the result of that is that the, the you have to get bigger and bigger rooms to to hold these meetings, um, and there is, uh, you know, a certain amount of dissatisfaction when, you know, countries, uh, big important countries like France and the UK have to sit in the back as observers, and they're not up front making speeches and all of that. So that's a, a regular tension within the operation of the council. But that having been said, the the organization functions best you know, because of the centrality of the eight Arctic states, the key uh, states uh, in the region, plus these indigenous groups. So I think there's a real hesitation to open it up to being um, everybody has equal time, even if they're, they're observers. And so they have to, but still there has to be outreach to the observers because of so much that those other countries, ranging from Japan to Singapore, China, UK, etc., all of them have something to offer in the Arctic, and they ought to be brought in within the tent. One country that has really made its presence felt in the Arctic over the past 10 years, of course, is China. And there's been pushback against that in various ways. Uh, 2019, um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in, in uh, the Arctic Ministerial Meeting in Rovaniemi really voiced quite strong skepticism to China's claims of being a near-Arctic state and so forth. How do you think the Arctic Council and the individual member states should engage with China and its ambitions in the Arctic? So I, I, I do think that it's possible to have a productive relationship with China uh, in the Arctic. China has uh, certainly long-term interests uh, at the poles, and it's pursuing those interests. Um, it has a science station on in Svalbard, as, as you know, and it has uh, longer-term uh, political interests. Now, I suppose that there is some concern when President Xi and President Putin issue statements about how they're going to work together in the Arctic, and then there's uh, some concern in other quarters about what that actually 
means. At the same time, the rise of China is a fact. They have some interests in the Arctic, and as long as they pursue those interests consistent with the interests of the of the states located in the region, and I think by and large they do, then I think that it's it's possible to you know accept uh, China's participation in that context. It seemed that the uh, the the real notable upswing in U.S. activity in the Arctic over the past two or three, maybe four years, was a reaction to China's increased assertiveness in Greenland and elsewhere in the Arctic. Do you think that will continue to be the case, that the United States sees this sort of great power competition between the United States, China, and Russia taking place in the Arctic? And how do you think the United States will continue to counter that? So, I, I mean, I, I think that there is, you know, some concern within the U.S. government, and that uh, leads to there being a careful watch on what countries like China and Russia are are doing in uh, in the Arctic, um, and that will certainly continue. So, the advantage with China is we're not talking about a military buildup the way we are when it comes to to Russia. So the issues tend to be uh, a little bit different. But yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, the U.S. and allied countries are interested in what sort of investment China wants to make in Greenland and other places and will naturally uh, respond. Um, but I don't think it's just China-focused. I think that there is an interest in what many countries are are doing and how they're positioning themselves for the future of an Arctic where the ice is receding and there'll be more economic activity in particular. Do you have any thoughts or perhaps even insights into how the United States is planning on further developing its Arctic policies and, and overall engagement given Russia's invasion of Ukraine and also this increasing uh, cooperation and almost uh, an alliance between Russia and China? Do you think that's going to affect how the United States acts in the Arctic? So the Biden administration has been working for a number of months uh, on the uh, updating the uh, national strategy for the Arctic region, a large policy document that was issued during the Obama administration um, and never superseded by the Trump administration, although the extent to which the Trump administration was really following it is is perhaps a question. But uh, as I understand it, a fair amount of work had been going into updating the policy, including the focus on the American North, on Alaska and developments there, the mission of the U.S. Coast Guard, etc., was receiving a lot of attention. And then all of a sudden we get Ukraine. And I think that has caused, I assume it's causing a kind of a rethink and a delay in, in terms of coming out with, with new policies because new angles need to be thought through, particularly from the security point of view. So um, I think it'll take a while before you know, Washington comes to grips with how Arctic policies should be affected by the invasion in Ukraine. 
All right, so Evan, you've also led the uh, U.S. Antarctic policy as head of the U.S. delegations to the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meetings and the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources from 2006 to uh, 2020. So how do you see, I mean, given your experience in, in those bodies, how do you see Russia's invasion of Ukraine impacting Antarctic governance going forward? So um, there haven't been any... Antarctic diplomatic meetings yet. And so we'll have to see what, what the implications are. Um, the, the Russians had already been, uh, becoming a bit difficult in terms of fisheries management issues at Camelar. And in fact, at the last uh, meeting that was, that was held in October, were particularly difficult when it came to negotiating uh, fishing quotas uh, and taking some pot shots at the UK uh, in ways that were a bit surprising. But that, in addition to the fact that Russia, along with China, have been you know, preventing forward progress on marine protected areas, um, establishment of new marine protected areas and implementing the existing ones, so I would guess that the Ukraine situation will make the upcoming ATCM, Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, in, that will be held in Germany in May, uh, even more difficult. You'll have two countries that are consultative parties uh, who are at war with each other, Russia and Ukraine, uh, both in theory present at the meeting, both able to veto actions because the ATCM operates on the basis of consensus. So it could actually be um, a very difficult meeting, the likes of which you know, has not been seen so far. It may depend on what issues are on the agenda and uh, whether Russian diplomats are able to get visas and travel to Germany for the meeting, uh, etc. So I think uh, some aspects of this are, are unclear, but uh, I think it could, um, in fact, be a very difficult meeting. But you do expect then that Russian diplomats will participate? Well, the, uh, as I understand it, the Germans are going ahead with the meeting and that they've, they've decided that. And I, I haven't heard that they've tried to exclude any delegation. I think it would be very difficult to do that especially because it's treaty-based cooperation. So uh, presumably they would find a way of, of inviting the Russians to, to participate. And then what the, the mood would be in the room, however, uh, in terms of working with them, I mean, I think that would remain to be seen. You know, and how, how and whether the Ukrainians can send a delegation, I just, you know, I just don't know. And one final question, Evan. Um, you also specialized in uh, ocean governance in your career at the State Department. And some of these issues very much relate to the polar regions. You mentioned uh, some of these marine protected areas in Antarctica. There was the fisheries agreement in the Arctic as well. And of course, uh, UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Do you see any of these having being impacted in any way? So I think all of these international processes will be implicated to some and affected to some degree. And I think it depends on 
what the nature of the discussions are and what the topics are at the particular moment. So, for example, the work of the International Maritime Organization uh, involves uh, coming up with regulations that are relevant to, to all countries. So you would expect that Russians and others would show up at those meetings and they have whatever the voting rules are. You might have less ability of some delegations to work together productively at the same time, they'll still be trying to negotiate whatever regulations they're they're pursuing. Um, you know, when it comes to law of the sea, that's an existing regime and should be you know strong enough and has been strong enough to uh, withstand international conflict. So the problem is is that when when you have this type of crisis then countries stop listening to each other in these fora. And it becomes very difficult for them to make progress on uh, issues you'd otherwise want them to make uh, progress on. I mean, similarly, when it comes to climate change issues, if the Russians are not able or willing to engage in the the, the Paris Agreement processes for political uh, reasons, it has effects on the, the rest of all, all other countries and the rest of the planet because there may be more methane emissions or lack of an ability to come to consensus on, you know, important steps. So um, I think the Ukraine conflict has really wide-ranging implications for uh, international organizations and, and cooperation. Evan T. Bloom, Senior Fellow at the Wilson Center's Polar Institute, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.